The Frank Case Inside Story of Georgia's Greatest Murder Mystery Complete History of the Sensational Crime and Trial Portraits of Principles Published by the Atlanta Publishing Company, Atlanta, Georgia Preface The sensational case of Leo M. Frank is undisputedly Atlanta's and the South's greatest murder mystery of modern years. The story of how little Mary Fagan was foully murdered as she went to get her pay at the National Pencil Factory, revolting and horrible as it is in its details, naturally interests every working man and every working woman. The mystery of the crime compels the interest of everyone who hears about it. The Mary Fagan murder mystery, however, lost its identity when Leo M. Frank, superintendent of the big factory, where the humble little employee met her death, was arrested and it became the Frank case. In no other murder case in the South has there been such intense interest. It has become more than the ordinary murder mystery, more than the story of a man of position charged with slaying in lustful passion a little factory girl. The reason of the unusual importance of the case is that it is charged that Frank is being persecuted because he is a Jew. The story of the fearful crime, of the principal developments of the four months that followed it, and finally, the story of the great trial, where for a solid month, the two greatest criminal lawyers in the South battled against the keen wits of Atlanta's Solicitor General to save Frank, has been told by press reports. Many of the interesting features about the Frank case, however, have never been printed because the newspapers dared not embody them in their accounts. This work ends with the conviction of Frank in the Superior Court of Fulton, Atlanta County. Trial did not end the case, for immediately after the young defendant was sentenced to pay the death penalty, a motion for a new trial was made, and it will be months, probably years, before he hangs, if he ever does. From the day of his conviction, however, the fight for Frank's life became a technical legal battle. The real story ends with the trial, and every essential feature is given here. The Author Chronology of the Crime April 27th The dead body of Mary Fagan is found in basement of National Pencil Factory at 3 a.m. by Newt Lee, Negro Night Watchman. Police hold Lee. April 27th Leo M. Frank, superintendent of the pencil factory, called from bed to view Mary Fagan's body. April 27th, Arthur Mullinax arrested. April 28th, blood splotches found in metal room on second floor lead police to believe the girl was killed there. April 28th, Coroner Donahue and panel's jury for inquest. It meets, views body and scene of crime and adjourns. April 28th, J.M. Gant, former bookkeeper at the factory, arrested at Marietta. April 28th, Pinkerton's hired by Pencil Factory to find Slayer. April 29th. Frank taken from factory to police station. Chief Lanford announces he will be held until after the inquest. April 29th. Experts declare Newt Lee wrote notes found by dead girl's side. April 29th. Luther Z. Rosser announces he has been retained by Frank and is present when his client is questioned in Chief Lanford's office. April 29th. Discovery of what is apparently a bloodstain near elevator leads police to believe girl's body was dragged to the conveyance shaft and dropped to the basement. April 30th. Frank and Lee closeted together in office of Chief of Detectives Lanford for an hour. 
April 30th. Coroner's jury reconvenes. Lee tells his story. May 1st. James Conley, Negro sweeper, arrested while washing shirt in factory. Considered unimportant at time. May 1st. Satisfied with alibis, police liberate Gant and Mullinax. May 1st. Frank and Lee taken to county jail to be held until outcome of coroner's jury probe. May 2nd. Solicitor General Dorsey enters actively into the case. May 5th. Frank tells of his actions on the day of the crime. On the stand for three and one-half hours, he tells a straightforward story. May 6th. Paul Bowen arrested in Houston, Texas. May 7th. Bowen released upon proving alibi. May 8th. Frank and Lee ordered held for grand jury by coroner's jury. May 12th. Mrs. Frank visits her husband for first time since his incarceration. May 17th. Colonel Thomas B. Felder announces that Burns Detective is at work on the mystery. May 21st. P.A. Flack, New York fingerprint expert, makes investigation. Results unknown. May 24th. Conley unexpectedly makes startling confession in which he says he wrote notes found near body at instigation of Frank. May 24th. Frank indicted by grand jury for murder. Lee held as material witness. May 26th. Burns officials announce their investigation terminated. May 27th. Conley makes another sensational affidavit in which he says he helped Frank carry Mary Fagan's body to basement. May 30th. Conley taken to pencil factory and reenacts in pantomime carrying of body to basement. Taken to tower. June 3rd. Manola McKnight makes sensational affidavit in which she says she overheard Mrs. Frank tell of strange conduct on Frank's part on the night of the murder. June 7th. Mrs. Frank scores Solicitor Dorsey, declaring that the room in which Manola McKnight made her incriminating affidavit was a, quote, torture chamber, end quote. June 8th. Attorney Rosser accuses Chief Lanford of insincerity in search for Slayer. June 23rd. Solicitor Dorsey sets trial for June 30th. June 24th. Date of trial changed to July 28th at conference between Superior Court Judge Roan and defense and prosecution attorneys. July 9th. Public is told of a portion of Mary Fagan's pay envelope being found at bottom of flight of stairs leading from office by Pinkerton detectives soon after the murder. July 18th. Call issued for grand jury to meet and consider indictment of Conley as principal. July 21st. Grand jury, after hearing statement of Solicitor Dorsey, agrees to suspend action in Conley matter. July 22nd. The discovery of a bloody stick near where Conley sat on day of murder is announced. July 28th. Trial of Frank commences. August 25th. Case goes to jury and verdict of guilty is returned. August 26th. Frank sentenced to death on October 10th and attorneys move for new trial. Chapter 1. Crime Discovered. Newtly, night watchman, yawned and stretched his legs. Far off in the silent city, a clock boomed once. The Negro listened intently. It was half past two o'clock of a Sabbath morning, April 27, 1913, and he must make his rounds. 
It was chilly there on the second floor of the National Pencil Factory, and Newt passed the palms of his black hands across the dusty glass surface of his lantern to warm them. The shadows in the corners danced and crept closer. Before him, the lantern light revealed the face of the big time clock, which it was his duty to punch every 30 minutes. In a little while, Newt would have made the rounds of the deserted factory building, could punch the clock, would sit down again for another rest. And he was tired, too, he thought. He needed rest. Yes, sir, he muttered to himself. I some tired. As Newt started down the stairs to the first floor, the darkness swallowed up behind him, and only a narrow path of light showed the flight of steps down which he must clamber. Another man at the same place an hour would have felt cold shivers wriggle up his spine, but not Newt. Night after night for many months he had been that same round, had seen those same shadows flicker on the bare walls, watched the lantern make the same ghostly tracings on the steps. But tonight he was tired, despite the fact that Mr. Frank, the superintendent of the factory, had given him nearly the whole afternoon off. He talked to himself as he reached the foot of the steps and began to throw his lantern light back and forth on the empty first floor. Many lonely nights spent as this one had taught Newt the value of silent communion and much sleep. Haya Ah comes down at three o'clock cause Mr. Frank says it a holiday and he wanted to get off early. He muttered thickly. And fust thing he says is for me ter get and have her good time, not ter come back till six. That's a swell time I had, ain't it? Trampsin' round town when I'd lots rather been a-sleepin' at home. Wonder what us to matter with Mr. Frank today, anyhow. Peered to be mouty nervous there, rubbin' his hands and comin' bustin' out the doa when I hollered to him, and meckin' me go upstairs with Mr. Gant ter get his shoes, just like he was scared dat Gant man'd steal somethin'. Huh, white folks don't steal nothing. Not like niggers, anyhow. By this time, Newt had made his examination of the first floor. All serene as usual. Gloomy, of course, with none of the busy workers that were there in the daytime, none of the men feverishly packing pencils, none of the scores of little factory girls bent over the machines. There were the machines, gleaming and still. Newt liked them still, for stillness and the commonplace meant safety to a night watchman. One more floor and he would be through. One more floor. The basement. Darkest of the dark. Always silent. Always sinister. He raised the trap door over the scuttle hole. A dim light shot up. The gas jet was burning as usual, but it was turned down mighty low, thought Newt to himself. Orders are orders, thought Newt, and Mr. Frank's orders were to always have that light burning brightly. Well, he would see. Down the ladder he climbed, his feet fastening gingerly on each round, his lantern swaying, its light spearing the dimmer light of the basement with faint gleams, really enhancing the silence and the gloom. His feet touched the bottom round. He was on the basement floor. To each corner, the lantern flecked its yellow rays. All right here, all right there. But stay, over there by the boiler, on that pile of sawdust. Newt advanced three steps forward and stopped. Steady the light burned, shining on a little pile of clothes and something else, something that Newt had never seen before. His heart thumped. He could hear it beat. His ears strained to catch some other sound, but from the sleeping city without, 
all was silent as a tomb. Nothing stirring but the quick, hard thump, thump of his heart. The silence pressed around him, gripping him, and for the first time in his life, the Negro was seized with a deadly, nauseous fear. He tried to throw it off. He swallowed something in his throat and tried to laugh. Show, muttered aloud. Dem factory boys is just trying to scare me. Just a little holiday joke, that's all. His voice sounded harsh and grating in the stillness. Just a little joke, he repeated fearfully. And then his voice trailed off into silence. One more step forward, one more flicker of the lantern. And Newt Lee stumbled back. He had seen something that caught his blood like an icy dam, and with one bound he was sobbing his way up the ladder. That thing by the boiler was no joke, no holiday prank. Jokes were not smeared with blood. Jokes did not have hair, nor staring eyes, nor faces bruised and scarred. Chapter 2. Police Reach Scene The same clock that boomed the hour that sent Newt Lee off on his rounds at the factory building boomed freedom from the night's work for three men at the Atlanta police station. It had been an easy night for police reporters, but easy nights are weary nights, and the welcome hour meant that the big presses up in the office were grinding out pages of printed matter for the citizens of the city to while away the Sunday hours between breakfast and time to go to church. Good night, chief, they shouted as they clattered down the stone steps of the station house. Good night, boys. The two of them turned up Decatur Street, foggy with the night mist, free from the throngs of merry, laughing colored people that had crowded them a few hours earlier. Only the lingering smell of fried fish and the reek of hot dogs remained of the jostling mass of humanity that had filled the street from curb to curb such a little while ago. "'Where's Brit?' said one. "'Out in Boots Rogers' automobile, I guess,' said the other, and the two laughed. So the third reporter was left in the automobile, while inside the station house the officers lolled back in their chairs to drone away the remaining hours till the first light of morning. Already over the smoky skyline to the east, a thin smudge of light was appearing. The arc lights in the street burned blue, and the hands on the station clock were crawling toward the hour of three. Somewhere off in the cells to the rear of the station, the gulping sobs of a negress reached the officers. Brought in earlier in the evening on the charge of disorderly conduct, She had continued to moan and yell throughout the night, until exhaustion brought only those racking sobs. Sergeant, growled a thick-set man near the door, whose chevrons proclaimed him ahead of a department. Make that woman shut up, will you? The sergeant sighed and clumped off toward the rear, swinging his keys. Boots Rogers, deputy, opened his mouth to begin the steenth exposition of the grace case when the telephone bell jangled. Well, said Officer W.T. Anderson, wonder who's ringing up this hour of the night. He rose wearily, strode to the door of the telephone booth, and swung it open. His brother officers looked up for a moment with passing interest and sank back in their seats. Hello, hello, came from the booth. Yes, this is the police station. What? You'll have to speak slower, old man. I don't get you. Then he got the message. The message from that Negro, many blocks away, crouching fearful in the gloom of the pencil factory, telling in a shaky voice of a dead girl found in the basement of the National Pencil Factory on Forsyth Street. As Officer Anderson crashed out of the phone booth with his news, the sleepy officers leapt to their feet. 
wide awake in a minute to the emergency. My machine's in front, yelled Rogers. Let's go. In a flash, he was out on the sidewalk, Anderson on his heels. Together they sprang into the car, woke the sleeping reporter, and the three of them were up the silent street with a sputter and roar, leaving the other officers gaping after a trail of dust and a winking red light. As the machine neared the corner of Pryor and Decatur Streets, two men were seen standing on the corner. They were officers Dobbs and Brown. The automobile slowed down. Jump in, yelled Rogers. And with hardly a perceptible pause, the big car rocked on up Marietta Street, slewed into Forsyth and stopped, panting, at the black pile that they knew was the National Pencil Company. The four men alighted. Each was breathing hard with excitement as Officer Anderson pounded on the door with his clenched fists. A muffled tread sounded from within, the latch grated harshly, and the frightened face of Newt Lee peered out at them. The whites of his eyes were rolling, and his teeth chattered. The picture of fear, each officer thought to himself. Before he could speak, where's the body? They shot at him, and had entered the gloomy portal of the factory. With Lee in advance and Anderson right behind with his hand clenched over a revolver, the men advanced single file to the scuttle hole. Backed by white folks, Newt Lee led them down the ladder into the darkness and pointed fearfully to the thing in the corner. That's it, he whispered. The officers bent and looked upon the fearfully mutilated body of a girl. She lay inert in the sawdust, her head toward the front, her feet diagonally across toward the right rear corner. The face, bruised and cut, black with grime, was turned toward the wall. The body was face downward, and as the men stooped for a further examination, the extent of the injuries was revealed to them. They could see her hair in shreds, the unmistakable hair of a white person, stained dark with blood that had oozed from a wicked blow on the back of the head. The blue ribbon that had been tied on so blithely but a few hours before now wilted and dirty. The silk lavender dress smeared with blood. One small white slipper still clinging to the right foot. Around the neck, a strand of heavy cord that had cut deep into the flesh. Around her head, a clumsily contrived gag, formed of cloth torn from her dress. They turned the body over. The underskirt was ripped to shreds. One stocking supporter was broken, the white stocking itself sagged down almost to the knee. Sergeant Brown threw his head back and gasped. My God, it's only a child. While they stood there, Sergeant Dobbs had been making a minute investigation of the cellar floor. A few feet away, he found the other slipper of the girl. Near the shaft of the elevator was her flimsy little hat. Then he made a discovery. Turning toward the lantern light, he held up to view two soiled pieces of yellow paper across which someone had scrawled rude letters. With bated breath, the officers read the notes. This was one. Quote, He said he would love me, laid down like the night witch did it, but that long, tall, black negro did it by himself. End quote. The other read, quote, Mama, that negro hired down here did this. I went to get water and he pushed me down this hole, a long, tall negro, black, that has it woke, long, lean, tall Negro, I write while play with me. End quote. What thing was this? What did they mean? Had the man who wrote these notes done this hellish deed? 
The quick flash of suspicion, already born in the brain of every white man present, turned toward the black man, Lee. It was Anderson who swung suddenly toward the watchman and flung a rough hand on his shoulder. "'Nigger, you done this,' he said hoarsely. "'Fore God, I didn't, white folks.' A moment later and Anderson had slipped the handcuffs on his wrists, and Newt Lee was under arrest for murder. Chapter 3 Frank Views Body By five o'clock of a still Sabbath morning, the dragnet of the law was spread for the slayer of a little factory girl. Immediately following the arrest of Newt Lee, he was taken to the station house and efforts were made to identify the dead child. Deputy Rogers told the officers while all were still at the pencil factory that he knew a girl that worked there who could probably look at the murdered child and tell who she was. She was his sister-in-law, he said, Grace Hicks, who lived at 100 McDonough Road. Rogers decided to go after her in his machine. Shortly before daylight, he returned with Miss Hicks and went with her to the morgue of P.J. Bloomfield where the body had been taken. There, Grace Hicks looked at the lacerated body. It's the little girl that worked at the machine next to me, she cried. It's Mary Fagan. With the words, she fainted. In the meantime, other officers of the police and detective departments had been busy at the scene of the crime. About 5.30 o'clock, Detective Starnes called up Frank, the superintendent, at his home, 68 East Georgia Avenue, told him that something had happened at the factory and that he would send for him in an automobile. So shortly after day-night, Rogers went to the Frank home in his car with Detective John Black. The door was opened to them by Mrs. Frank, and immediately afterward, her husband came out. According to the story of Black and Rogers, Frank asked them if anything had happened at the pencil factory, but they told him to get his coat and come with them. Black said later that Frank was dressed, all except his collar and tie, and that he appeared to be extremely nervous, constantly rubbing his hands. The three of them got into Rogers' car and rushed off toward town. On the way, Black asked Frank if he knew a girl named Mary Fagan, and the superintendent is said to have told him that he would look on the factory payroll and see. It was at this time that Black told Frank of the murder. On the way to the factory, the three stopped at the undertaker's and looked on the body of Mary Fagan. It is said that Frank was asked if he knew her and replied that he thought so, and that he would find out for certain at the factory. Leaving the undertaker's, the trio approached the factory at sunrise. Already, the news of the murder had spread over the town, and a small group of men stood outside the factory door. Among them was N.V. Darley, general foreman of the factory, whom Frank had requested his wife to notify before he left home. Frank hailed the foreman, and he entered with the superintendent and the officers. Straight up the stairs to Frank's office, the men went. The superintendent opened the safe, took out a blank book, ran his finger down a column of names, and stopped at one. Mary Fagan stared up from the page. Yes, said Frank, according to Roger's story. She was here yesterday to get her pay. If I make no mistake, my stenographer left at 12 o'clock, the office boy went a few moments later, and then she came in and got her pay. It was 12.15. Stepping quickly away from the book, Frank rubbed his hands and asked if any traces of the pay envelope had been found around the factory. There had been none. The next request of the superintendent was to see the place where the girl's body had been found. Officers, superintendent, and foreman boarded the elevator leading to the basement. First, it is said, Frank went up to a switchbox by the elevator, 
told the officers that he was accustomed to keeping it locked, then unlocked it, turned on the machinery, and the elevator started on its downward trip. In his nervousness, Frank did not see that the elevator rope was caught, and Darley reached over and helped him release it. After viewing the basement room where the body was found, the party returned upstairs. Newt Lee has worked for us a short time, Frank is quoted as saying, but Darley's known him a long time. If anybody can get anything out of him, it's Darley. On the return to the first floor, someone suggested that they all go down to the station house, with which Frank turned to Darley and is said to have told him, I guess I'd better put a new slip on the clock. What followed is best told by Boots Rogers. By his testimony, given later, Frank talked but little of the murder, but said, That's too bad, as he looked at the spot where little Mary Fagan was found dead. When Frank spoke to Darley about a new slip on the clock, said Rogers, the foreman agreed with him. Rogers said, Frank took his keys out of his pocket, unlocked the door of the lock on the right, and took out the time slip. He examined the slip and then said it was punched all right. Lee was handcuffed and was standing near. Darley also was there. After seeing that the time slip was punched all right, Frank laid it down on the table and went into his office, coming out with a blank slip. While he was in the office getting the new slip, several of us examined the one taken from the clock. When Frank put in the new slip, he asked some of us to help him and I held a lever. Frank found a pencil in one of the punch holes and asked Lee why it was there. The Negro said he put the pencil there so he would punch the right hole and make no mistake. Frank unlocked the clock and on the margin of the slip he wrote in pencil, April 26, 1913. Then he folded the slip and carried it back into the inner office. When I examined the slip, I noticed just the first two punches especially. One was punched at 6.01 o'clock and the second at 6.32 or 6.33. He didn't notice any skips on the slip. He thought if there had been any omissions, he would have seen them. From the factory, Frank and the officers went to the police station, still in Roger's machine, which, verily, had seen hard service that Sunday morning. Darley and Roger sat on the front seat, Lee and Detective Black in the rear. Frank was sitting on Darley's knee. He trembled violently, said Darley. At the police station, Frank is said to have leapt out of the automobile in a nervous jump, walking rapidly into the chief of detectives' office and talking in a quick, constrained manner. During the conversation in the detective's office, Frank told them of the visit to the factory, Saturday morning of one J.M. Gant, a young man who was discharged from the factory a short time before and who came back that afternoon for a pair of shoes he had left there. Frank told the detectives that Gant knew Mary Fagan well. On the strength of this statement, the detective force started looking for Gant. With Newt Lee held in the station on the charges of suspicion, Frank at his home, and detectives on the lookout for several suspects, the first day of the famous Mary Fagan case came to a close. All during that still Sabbath, crowds had passed constantly back and forth along Forsyth Street, content merely to stand and gaze at the building where black murder had been done, although a ceaseless watch was maintained by officers on all who entered or left the factory, and the general public was entirely excluded from its interior. And in the meantime, there was sorrow in a little home in Bellwood, which Mary Fagan had left alive and happy on Saturday. Chapter 4. Mother Hears of Murder The story of Mary's actions on that last Saturday she was alive is told as follows by various witnesses. 
Memorial Day dawned cloudy and dim. It was a holiday, the first that the little factory girl who worked so hard from morning until night had had in many weeks. She planned to go to town right after dinner, get her $1.20 pay at the factory, and spend the rest of the day watching the Confederate Veterans Parade down Peachtree Street. Shortly before noon, she hurriedly ate her simple dinner of cabbages and biscuit, and left the home which she was never destined to see again. She boarded a streetcar for the city about noon. On the car was tow-headed, freckle-faced George Epps, the newsboy that lived near Mary, the little fellow whom she had always liked. They sat together on the car, and before they parted, Mary had promised to meet her little friend at one o'clock, and with him watch the boys in gray march. At Marietta and Forsyth Streets, but little over a block from the factory, Mary alighted from the car, according to George Epps, and walked down Forsyth Street, saying that she was going to the factory. This car was due to arrive at the corner of Broad and Marietta Streets, one block from where she left it, at 12.07 o'clock. Late that evening, George Epps ran over to the Fagan home to find out why Mary had not met him as she promised. He found her mother feverishly worried because Mary had not been home at all. J.W. Coleman, Mary's stepfather, went to town at the solicitation of Mrs. Coleman to see if he could find Mary anywhere. She might have gone to the Bijou Theater with some of her girlfriends, Mrs. Coleman told her husband. Wait down there until it gets out and see if you can't find her. Mr. Coleman went to the Bijou, waited until the show was over, watched the streams of faces pass him by, but never saw the face of the little girl he sought. He returned to the home, 146 Lindsay Street, and consoled the grieving mother with the thought that Mary might have gone to Marietta to visit her grandmother. She was always starting to do that, Mr. Coleman told her, and probably she just decided to go after she drew her pay Saturday. The mother's heart was aching, but she managed to quiet all outward fears. Yet all through the long night, she was wondering where her little girl was. Early on Sunday morning, April 27th, there came a knock on the door of the Fagan home. The mother's heart told her it was news of Mary, and she flew to the threshold. A white-faced girl stood at the door her eyes deep with sorrow, her lips hardly able to utter the awful words she came to tell. She was Helen Ferguson, a neighbor. Mary is, she began. The mother's heart read the rest. Not dead, she cried, stricken to the depths. Yes, dead, dead, the girl sobbed, breaking into a storm of weeping. Other members of the family came running to the door. The mother swooned and was supported to a couch within the home. There she lay for days afterwards, unable to speak save to ask piteously for her little daughter. The news once broken to the Fagan family, Mr. Coleman hastened to town to see the body of the little girl, who had become even more than a daughter to him. At Bloomfield's, the undertakers, Will Giesling, an assistant, showed him the body, and the old man positively identified it. He was but one of many who looked on the body that day and the day following. Morbid curiosity, the same that influenced hundreds to gaze at the blank walls of the pencil factory, and later to stand for hours outside the courtroom where the trial took place, led thousands of people to steal one glance at the corpse of a girl murdered so cruelly and so mysteriously. The largest crowds looked on the body of Mary Fagan that have ever seen a dead body in the history of the city of Atlanta. It was estimated that 20,000 saw the remains while they were at the undertaking establishment while many hundreds viewed them at the funeral at Marietta. 
The funeral took place Tuesday afternoon. Before that, however, physicians made an examination of parts of Mary Fagan's body, although the result of their probe was kept a profound secret until the trial. On Tuesday afternoon, April 29th, the body of the little girl was laid to rest in the old family cemetery at Marietta, Georgia, 20 miles from Atlanta, while members of the family and scores of friends stood by, weeping bitterly. On May 7th, the body was exhumed at the order of the state solicitor, and a minute examination made of the stomach and other vital organs by Dr. H. F. Harris of the State Board of Health. What he found out was known only to himself and the solicitor until he testified on the witness stand at the trial, nearly three months later. Chapter 5. Crime Stirs Atlanta Following the news that Mary Fagan had been murdered in the basement of the National Pencil Factory, the city of Atlanta was stirred as it had never before been stirred. The famous Grace case had created excitement. The trial of Mrs. Callie Scott Applebaum had been of profound interest, but the mystery surrounding the murder of Mary Fagan and the atrocity of the crime combined to make it a sensation, which lasted not only the requisite nine days, but remained a mystery for months, a mystery in which the final chapter may never be written, a mystery which will always make the case the most famous in the criminal annals of the state of Georgia. The name of Mary Fagan was on the lips of all on the Monday morning following the day of the murder. The papers got out extra after extra. They were snapped up by thousands. It seemed as if the public could not read enough of the horrible crime. The result was that the Atlanta Police Department was swamped with rumors, most of them extremely sensational, which their originators claimed would lead to the discovery of the murderer. While the first wave of public opinion was unanimous in declaring Newt Lee the guilty man, Reports of other suspects resulted in the arrest of another man before that first Sunday was ended. He was Arthur Mullinax, a former streetcar conductor and an alleged friend of the dead girls. Mullinax was arrested on the statement of E.L. Santel, an employee of the C.J. Camper Grocery Company, who said that he saw the man with Mary Fagan at 12.30 o'clock on the morning of the murder walking along Forsyth Street near the pencil factory. Santel, in his statement to the police, said that he had known Mary Fagan for years and that he was positive she was the girl he saw on the street, and more startled than ever when, on her approach, he recognized her as the little Fagan girl. He said that as the couple passed them, he said, Hello, Mary, and that she replied, Hello, Ed. Mullinax was easily apprehended by the police and late Sunday evening was taken to the police station. Here, Suntel positively identified him as the man he said he saw with Mary Fagan. A crowd was at the police station when Mullinax was taken into custody, and several threats were made on his life, a typical instance of the point to which public sentiment had become inflamed. The suspect vehemently denied his innocence to the police, declaring that he knew Mary Fagan only by sight and that he had met her but once, at a Christmas entertainment. The officers decided to keep him on suspicion, and he was lodged in a separate cell. On Monday, another suspect, J.M. Gant, was arrested at Marietta. Several suspicious circumstances pointed to Gant as knowing somewhat of the crime. He was known to have been acquainted with Mary Fagan. He had been at the factory Saturday afternoon. He had formerly worked at the factory and was familiar with the building. Gant's sister, Mrs. F.C. Terrell, was located by officers at her residence, 284 East Linden Street, where she said Gant had stayed Friday night. 
she gave a conflicting account of his movements after that. Officers decided they were on the right track. Monday morning, Gant was arrested with a warrant charging him with being suspected of the murder of Mary Fagan, just as he stepped off the car at Marietta. He was brought to Atlanta and joined Lee and Mullinax in the station house. Gant told a straight story, admitting that he had been discharged from the factory several weeks before, that he went back Saturday to get some shoes he had left there, that in going to Marietta at that unfortunate time, he was merely following out some plans he had suggested to his mother many days before. On the morning following his detention, Gant sought to get out of jail by applying for a writ of habeas corpus. But before it could be acted on, both he and Mullinax were released on May 1st, following testimony at the coroner's inquest, by which each established a clear alibi. Mullinax was released largely owing to the testimony of his fiancée, Pearl Robinson, who came forward and said she was the girl seen with him by Centel. Gant was later subpoenaed as a witness at the trial, while Mullinax was discovered to know so little about the case that he was not even summoned as a witness. The rumors in regard to Gant and Mullinax were but two of many that the police had to run down, explode, or confirm during the days following the murder. Tales of a girl being kidnapped in an automobile Saturday morning and drugged. Of a girl with a red dress who said she knew something about the crime being seen at Marietta. Rumors and rumors of rumors had the police and detectives well-nigh frantic. Not the least of them resulted in the arrest of a man in far-off Houston, Texas, Paul Bowen, a former Atlanta boy who knew Mary Fagan. Bowen succeeded in proving an alibi on May 7th, the day after his arrest, without having to make the long trip back to Atlanta. It is interesting to note that owing to the warm condition of Houston politics, at the time Bowen's arrest was seized upon, as an excuse for discharging half the detective force of that city. The police received alleged aid on the Monday following the murder, when it was announced that the pencil factory authorities had retained the services of local Pinkerton detectives to aid in running down the murderer. During that Monday, April 28th, there were so many rumors afloat that real progress on the Fagan case was but little. During the morning, the coroner's jury met with Coroner Paul Donahue in the metal room of the pencil factory and was impaneled. It immediately adjourned after viewing the body and the scene of the crime. An interesting discovery of the day was that of blood spots on the floor of the metal room, which led detectives to think that the Fagan girl was killed there, and not in the basement, as was at first supposed, and that her body was then dragged to the basement. This was but one of the many theories advanced as to how and when the little girl met her death. So ended Monday, April 28th, with three suspects, Lee, Gant, and Mullinax, in jail, and the men who later were to be the chief actors in the drama still at large. The arrest of one of them was to follow before 24 hours had passed. Chapter 6 Leo Frank is Arrested on the morning of Tuesday, April 29th, Leo M. Frank, superintendent of the National Pencil Factory, was taken to the police station and held on suspicion in connection with the murder of Mary Fagan. From that day on, he never regained his freedom. Slim, boyish-looking, a frail, delicate man, he was a different suspect than either the old darky, Newt Lee, the young giant, Gant, or the ex-conductor, Arthur Mullinax. Who he was cannot be better told than in his own words, spoken nearly four months later to the jury who decided his fate. 
He said, In the year 1884, on the 17th day of April, I was born in Paris, Texas. At the age of three months, my parents took me to Brooklyn, New York, and I remained in my home until I came south to Atlanta to make my home here. I attended the public schools of Brooklyn and prepared for college in Pratt Institute, Brooklyn, New York. In the fall of 1902, I entered Cornell University, where I took the course in mechanical engineering and graduated after four years in June 1906. I then accepted a position as draftsman with the B.F. Sturdivant Company of High Park, Massachusetts. After remaining with this firm for about six months, I returned once more to my home in Brooklyn, where I accepted a position as testing engineer and draftsman with the National Meter Company of Brooklyn, New York. I remained in this position until about the middle of October 1907, when, at the invitation of some citizens of Atlanta, I came south to confer with them in reference to the starting and operation of a pencil factory to be located in Atlanta. After remaining here for about two weeks, I returned once more to New York, where I engaged passage and went to Europe. I remained in Europe nine months. During my sojourn abroad, I studied the pencil business and looked after the erection and testing of the machinery which had been previously contracted for. The first part of August 1908, I returned once more to America and immediately came south to Atlanta, which has remained my home ever since. I married in Atlanta an Atlanta girl, Miss Lucille Selig. The major portion of my married life has been spent at the home of my parents-in-law, Mr. and Mrs. E. Selig at 68 East Georgia Avenue. Frank was taken into the custody of the police shortly before noon Tuesday, as he was at the pencil factory. An automobile which left the police station carrying Detective Harry Scott of the Pinkerton Agency and City Detective John Black returned within 10 minutes with Frank, who was confined in a cell. Chief of Detectives Newport A. Lanford announced that he would be held pending the result of the coroner's inquest. The news of the latest arrest spread like wildfire. Speculation was rife as to Frank's connection with the case. Scores of his friends came to his aid, Hundreds who had never seen him declared that he must be the guilty man. The latter pointed out the following condemning facts that were known at that time. That Frank, by his own admission, was the last man known to have seen Mary Fagan alive. That he appeared nervous when Newt Lee came to the factory early in the afternoon, and that he called Newt Lee over the telephone during the evening, something he had never done before that he was nervous when Gant came to the factory at 6 o'clock Saturday afternoon, that he was nervous when officers took him to the factory Sunday morning. Frank's friends set up a cry of indignation over his arrest. They at once retained Luther Z. Rosser, one of Atlanta's foremost attorneys for counsel. Rosser immediately called at the station and talked with his client, and was also present when Frank was questioned by detectives. Besides interviewing his counsel, Frank held a long talk with Pinkerton detective Harry Scott, retained by the factory officials. Public sentiment on that Tuesday, the day before the inquest started, attained its highest point since the discovery of the murder. With four suspects held, opinion was equally divided as to who was the guilty man, although the majority condemned either Newt Lee, the Negro, the most humble of the pencil factory employees, or Leo Frank, the white man the boss of the firm. Suspicion against Gant and Mullinax already was fast dropping away. The detectives of both the city and Pinkerton forces scoured the factory, the homes of the suspects, the whole city in their search for clues. 
At the pencil factory, they found blood spots near the elevator shaft on the first floor, a discovery which led to confirm their belief that Mary Fagan was murdered on that floor and her body dragged to the shaft, where it was lowered to the basement. Another find was of a bloody shirt, which city detectives unearthed in their minute examination of the premises around Newt Lee's humble abode. The shirt was discovered in an ash barrel back of his cabin. It was covered with dark stains, although it gave every appearance of not having been worn after the blood was smeared on it. This discovery served to swing suspicion more than ever against the night watchman, while Newt himself stoutly declared that he had worn the shirt then on his back for a week. On Tuesday, two rewards were offered for evidence leading to the discovery of Mary Fagan's murder, one by the state of $200 and another by the city of $1,000. The town was in a turmoil on that night, with the official inquest of the coroner scheduled to begin the next day. Chapter 7. The Inquest Starts The coroner's inquest started Wednesday morning, following a long interview between Frank and Newt Lee, held Tuesday night at the police station. Detectives stated that the two suspects were brought face-to-face in the hope that Frank could wring a confession of guilt from the Negro. Scores of witnesses, including girls from the factory and many others, arrived at the police station Wednesday morning to testify at the inquest. The inquest began at 9.10 o'clock, behind closed doors, in the room of the Board of Commissioners. Call Officer W.F. Anderson and Officer Brown testified as the first witnesses. They went into full details as to how they were notified of the murder and how they found the body on that gruesome Saturday night. Officer Anderson's testimony contained a vivid and revolting description of how the body was mutilated and torn. In the dim light of the cellar, testified Officer Anderson, the body could not be identified as that of a white girl's unless the observers were at least within 15 feet of where it lay. He was present, said the witness, when somebody picked up a note near the body. He identified it as the one written on a slip of yellow paper. Later, somebody found another note. He didn't identify that. About five feet from the girl's body, a pencil was found. Near it was a pad from which the slip evidently had been torn. He described the basement, a long, narrow enclosure between rock walls, with the elevator shaft near the front, a boiler on the right about halfway back, a partition on the left shutting in an enclosure which seemed to be waste space, an open toilet on the right beyond the boiler, the girl's body on the left, beyond that, and a door at the back end. The girl's left slipper was found near the elevator. She wore no hat that he could find. He didn't remember distinctly how she was dressed, but believed it was in some dark material. Officer Brown followed Anderson on the stand and gave testimony extremely damaging to Newt Lee, declaring, as did Anderson, that it was impossible to tell that the body was that of a white girl, unless within a very few feet of it. He said that only until he rolled down the stocking below the knee and saw the flesh could he tell that the girl was white. He described the fearfully dirty appearance of the body, stating that only by being dried could it have accumulated so much dirt and grime. He also told how they had tried to reach Frank over the phone in the early morning hours, but had not been able to do so until several hours later. During Brown's testimony, a dramatic incident occurred. The little girl's clothes, a one-piece purple dress with white trimmings, one shoe, a black gunmetal slipper, were shown to the jury. As they were placed in a heap on a chair, Mary Fagan's brother rose from a seat in the corner, stared in horror at the pathetic little pile, 
and ran from the room with his hands clasped to his head. At 11.45 o'clock, Newt Lee himself took the stand. He testified to coming to the factory at 4 o'clock, leaving when told to do so by Frank. Coming back at 6, he told of Frank's nervousness, of Gant's visit to the factory, of Frank calling him over the phone to ask him if everything was all right early in the evening, and of finding the body. Newt testified that he found the body face up, although detectives and officers say that it was face down. Newt swore, however, that he did not touch the body. In answering the allegations of the officers that he could not tell it was a white girl, he declared he could tell by the hair, which was always different in white women from black women. The last witness to testify before the jury adjourned Wednesday morning was J.G. Spear of Cartersville, who swore that he saw a girl and a man Saturday afternoon in front of the pencil factory, that they were excited and nervous, and that the girl was the same one he saw Sunday at P.J. Bloomfield's chapel, the dead Mary Fagan. Wednesday afternoon, the first witness to testify was George Epps, the young newsboy who came to town on the car with Mary Fagan. An interesting phase of his testimony was the statement that Mary had told him that Mr. Frank had winked at her and, quote, looked suspicious, end quote. E. L. Santel testified in regard to seeing Mullinax with a girl whom he supposed to be Mary Fagan late Saturday night. Another witness, a neighbor, said he had seen her about five o'clock near her home, while a third witness, who had told detectives that he had seen Mary Fagan that afternoon, appeared at the inquest to say that he was mistaken. Santel was convinced by officers that he was not sure the girl he saw was Mary Fagan. R.P. Barrett, a factory employee, testified to finding the blood spots near Mary's machine on the second floor, showing that she may have begun her fight for life there instead of in the dark basement. Gant took the stand and told the same story that he had already told to detectives. J.W. Coleman, stepfather of Mary Fagan, testified to the anxiety of himself and her mother on the night of the murder. Frank M. Barry, assistant cashier at the Fourth National Bank, was one of the important witnesses at the hearing, and he declared that, in his opinion, the notes found by the girl's body were written in the same hand as several other notes, which had been written at police headquarters for the detectives by the Negro watchman, Newt Lee. The inquest then adjourned until Thursday. When the inquest adjourned at 6 o'clock Wednesday afternoon, the detectives had made one step toward solving the mystery of little Mary Fagan's death. This was the arrival at the conclusion that the little girl had never left the factory after she went there shortly after noon Saturday to get her pay. Assertions that Mary had been seen at midnight with Mullinax and that girls corresponding to her description had been seen at various hours Saturday afternoon in the neighborhood of the factory, one by one were probed deeply and found to be unfounded. E. L. Santel admitted that it was Pearl Robinson, and not Mary Fagan that he had seen with Mullinax. Other witnesses who were supposed to have seen the little girl Saturday afternoon came forward to declare that they might have been mistaken. This underbrush cleared away, officers could find a working basis at last a substantial supposition that Mary Fagan never came out of the pencil factory alive. As a result of their conclusions, Gant and Mullinax were released from custody at the temporary adjournment of the inquest Thursday afternoon, an inquest which was in session for but a few minutes. Coroner Donahue had called 160 witnesses, most of them factory employees, and after swearing them in at 4.30 o'clock, announced that the investigation of the little girl's death would be postponed until the Monday following. 
Hardly had this news been announced when a bigger sensation followed. Newtley and Leo Frank were ordered transferred to the Fulton County Tower until the conclusion of the inquest. At police headquarters, it was given out that the two suspects were taken to the tower because there was considerable doubt as to the legality of detaining them on city warrants, as both had been arrested in connection with the state and not a city case. The coroner's warrants by which the two men were taken to the tower were exactly alike in each case, save for the names. Franks read, Georgia, Fulton County. To the jailer of said county. Greetings. You are hereby required to take into custody the person of Leo M. Frank, suspected of the murder of Mary Fagan, and to retain the said Leo M. Frank in your custody, pending a further investigation of the death of said Mary Fagan, to be held by the said coroner of said county. Herein fail not. Given under my hand an official signature, this the first day of May, 1913. Signed, Paul Donahue, Coroner. With the two men in the tower Thursday and two other ex-suspects released, there appeared to be but little doubt that in the persons of Frank and Newt Lee, the detectives held the key to the mystery. Yet there was another man in the toils of the law, a man whose arrest created such little excitement at the time that a bare paragraph was devoted to it in the newspapers. Yet later, this man was to startle the public with the most sensational statement that was ever told until the trial started. He was James Jim Conley, Negro sweeper at the pencil factory. Conley was arrested at 2 o'clock Thursday afternoon on suspicion and was confined at police headquarters, together with Snowball, elevator boy at the factory. The latter never figured prominently in the case. The slight interest which Conley's arrest caused at the time is shown in the newspaper account of it. The sixth arrest in the Fagan murder case was made by detectives at 1 o'clock Thursday. James Conley, a Negro sweeper employed at the National Pencil Factory, was seen washing a shirt at a faucet in the rear of the building. Before he had completed the work, detectives, who had been phoned, walked in and placed the man under arrest. There were certain marks on the man's shirt. He claims that they are rust marks. The detectives will hold him, at least until a chemical analysis can determine for certain whether or not the stains were caused by blood. The Negro declared to the police that the shirt was the only one which he possessed, and that he washed it so he could appear in it at the inquest, to which he had been summoned. His statement is believed by the police. At this time, theories and tips still poured into the detective office. Many of Frank's friends were working personally on the case in their endeavor to clear the cloud of suspicion, which hovered over the well-known young superintendent. He was prominent in the community, liked by a wide circle of friends. He was president of the local Hebrew organization, B'nai B'rith, a leader in church and social work, of good standing in the business world, a college graduate, pleasant to talk with, with no small amount of personal magnetism and charm. Even at that early hour, when very trivial circumstances were held up against Frank, his friends rallied warmly to his support. Theories of how Mary Fagan met her death and by just what system her murderer can be brought to justice were flooding the office of the detectives. People called over the phone to tell the officers just how they should proceed. Many of them came in person, and the office was in receipt of hundreds of letters from this and half a dozen other states, giving advice and theories. Many of the letter writers were anonymous, but most of the people signed their names. Several letters were received from criminologists, 
who were willing to divulge their theories only for money. Several letters came from seers and mystics, who communed with the spirits and learned in that way the identity of the murderer. Among the interesting callers at police headquarters were two ladies who dreamed about the murder. Both said that they distinctly saw Mary Fagan in her desperate battle with the murderer. The ladies arrived within a short time of each other, but their dreams didn't coincide. Both gave the chief accurate descriptions of the murderers of their dreams. While friends of Frank were flocking to defend him, there was an equal amount of condemnation voiced against both him and the Negro. Mutterings and threats began to fill the air, and when the detectives showed that they really thought either Frank or Lee the criminal, according to the public's view of it, by taking the two to the tower, sentiment reached fever heat. That Thursday night promised ugly things. Fear of what might happen in the then aroused state of affairs caused officials of city, county, and even the state to take extremely precautionary measures. Thursday night, Governor Joseph M. Brown advised Adjutant General J. Van Holt Nash to communicate with officers of the 5th Regiment, National Guard of Georgia, with a view to having the troops in readiness should an emergency arise. The governor also warned the jail authorities and the police to be on the lookout for any signs of trouble on the part of the populace. In response to the warnings of the governor, Colonel E.E. E. Pomeroy, commanding the 5th Regiment, gathered his men at the auditorium armory, a few blocks from the tower where Frank and Lee were behind the bars, and held the troops there until a late hour of the night. At 11.30 o'clock, the soldiers were allowed to return to their homes, rumors of mob violence having proven groundless. From Thursday until the coroner's jury convened again Monday morning, there was little of real interest to crop up in the famous case, although rumors and speculations continued to grip the city and the state. The cupidity of the public for news continued at a high pitch, and Saturday night the militia was again ordered to be in readiness in case trouble should come up. Solicitor H.M. Dorsey held a long conference Saturday morning with Chief of Detectives Lanford and Coroner Paul Donahue, a conference which, it was understood, resulted in the summoning of more witnesses for the inquest and a unifying of the forces of city and state at work on the case. All day Saturday, the city was alive with rumors that there had been a confession from one of the two prisoners in the tower. Rumors which the officials indignantly denied, and which later turned out to be entirely unfounded. So did the first week since Mary Fagan's body was found end, with the best forces of county, city, and state, and outside agencies at work on the case, with two suspects in the tower, and the whole state looking forward to what the coroner's inquest might develop when it convened again Monday afternoon at 2 o'clock. Chapter 8. Frank's Story Before the coroner's jury reconvened Monday afternoon, the new Fulton County Grand Jury was sworn in by Judge W.D. Ellis Monday morning. In his charge to the members, the judge impressed on them the necessity for considering the Fagan case before all else, if they should be called upon to take up a charge against a man accused of murdering the little girl. In referring to the case, the judge said, The Mary Fagan case calls for your immediate and vigorous attention. The power of the state is behind you. What appears to be an awful crime has been committed, and the welfare of the community, the good name of Atlanta, public justice— and the majesty of the law demand at the hands of this grand jury and of all officers of the law the most searching investigation and the prompt bringing to trial of the guilty party. 
At 2.30 o'clock Monday afternoon, the coroner's jury took up anew its probe of the murder of Mary Fagan. Leo M. Frank was the first witness called. For three hours and a half, he stayed on the stand, telling a complete story of where he was and what he did on the day of the murder. Alternately interrupted by questions on the part of the coroner, Solicitor Dorsey, and Chief Lanford. The only other witnesses examined during the afternoon were Mr. and Mrs. Emil Selig, at whose home the Franks lived, Selig being Frank's father-in-law. Frank first testified that he had formerly lived in Brooklyn, New York, that he left Brooklyn in October 1907, that he went abroad and, returning to the United States, went to work for the National Pencil Company, where he came to be general superintendent. He said in that capacity his duties were to look after the purchase of material, inspect factory costs, see that orders were properly entered and filled, and look after the production in general. Frank told how he came down to the factory as usual Saturday morning, and of the customary routine there until the hour of noon, his work lightened somewhat, owing to the fact that the day was a holiday and there were only 11 people in the factory. He told how shortly after 12, Miss Hall, the stenographer, and Alonzo Mann, the office boy, left the building, when he started copying orders in the shipping requests. He said that at that time, so far as he knew, there was no one left in the office. About 12.10 or 12.05, said Frank, this little girl who was killed came up and got her envelope. I didn't see or hear anyone with her. I didn't hear her speak to anyone who might have been outside. I was in my office working at the orders when she came up. I don't remember exactly what she said. I looked up, and when she told me she wanted her envelope, I handed it to her. Knowing that the employees would be coming in for their pay envelopes, I had them all in the cash basket beside me, to save walking to the safe each time. Frank said he didn't know Mary Fagan's number. He said each envelope had the employee's number stamped on it. He admitted that he had looked up Mary Fagan's number since the murder, but he had forgotten it again, he said. He did not see her pay envelope after he handed it to her. He made no entry of the payment, on the payroll or any other record, because none was required, said he. The girl left. She got to the outer door and asked if the metal had come. I told her no. He explained that the Fagan child hadn't been working since Monday because of the shortage in the metal supply. There was $1.20 in the child's pay envelope, he said, part of it being for work on Friday and Saturday of the previous week. He didn't know at what rate she was paid, he said, as he didn't open the sealed pay envelope. When she left, he heard her footsteps die away in the hall, he said, and returned to his work, thinking no more about her. Frank said he knew the Fagan child's face, but didn't know her name. She stood partly behind his desk, he said, and he didn't notice the details of her dress, but thought the color was light. He didn't recall whether she wore a hat or carried a parasol or purse, he said, and didn't see her shoes or stockings, which, he said, were hidden by the desk. The girl reached his office between 12.10 and 12.15, he said, and stayed there about two minutes. He thought her name was on the outside of the pay envelope, he said, but had identified her by her number. No one else came into the office while she was there, the witness said. In response to a question from the coroner, he said that he had told her she had come almost too late. When she left, he thought he heard her voice in the outer office, he said. He made no entry on the payroll after giving the girl her envelope, he said. Frank then made a startling statement. It was that five or ten minutes after Mary Fagan left, Lemmy Quinn, foreman in the tip department, entered his office. 
Quinn stayed a few minutes, said Frank. They had some small talk, and the foreman left about 12.25 o'clock. He said that Quinn knew Mary Fagan, being head of the department in which the girl worked. Before Frank left the office, he went up to the fourth floor, according to his story, where he found Harry Denham and Arthur White and Mrs. White, the two boys being employees of the factory. Frank said he then went home, reaching there about 1.20 o'clock Saturday afternoon. About 3 o'clock, he said, he came back to the factory. Shortly after, he said, White and Denham, whom he found working on the third floor on his return, left the building, White borrowing $2 from him on his way downstairs. He went downstairs after them, he said, and locked the door. The rest of the afternoon, he said, he spent in work on the financial sheet. He described Lee's arrival early in the afternoon, how he told him to come back, and how, about 6 o'clock after the Negro had returned, Gant came and got his shoes. He then went home, he said, reaching there about 6.25 o'clock. He told how he phoned Lee at the factory. Frank said he went to bed at 11 o'clock. He continued his story with what happened the following Sunday. Frank described his conversation with Lee at the police station on the Monday following the murder, when detectives told him to interview the black and try to get a confession out of him. Frank said he told the watchman, They know you know something. They can swing us both if you don't tell just what the detectives had asked him to say. A little after six o'clock, Frank descended from the stand, as unruffled by the terrific grilling and bombardment of questions he had received as he had been before he testified. He stated to a reporter that he was not tired at all, and indeed he did not appear to be, despite the trying experience. Emil Selig and his wife, Mrs. Josephine Selig, followed Frank on the witness stand. In effect, they testified the same that they saw Frank at dinner Saturday, at supper Saturday, then he went to bed about 11 o'clock, and that he had left for the factory when they awoke Sunday morning. They did not infer that he appeared nervous at any time. At 7.20 o'clock, the inquest adjourned until 9.30 o'clock Thursday morning. The intervening days were allowed in order that more witnesses might be subpoenaed, and the statements made by Frank thoroughly investigated. Lemmy Quinn, who had first told detectives that he had not been at the pencil factory at all Saturday, admitted that he was wrong. He said that he had forgotten his visit, that he had stayed but a short while, and was only in Frank's office for a minute. He indignantly denied that he had been offered a bribe to protect Frank by his testimony. Thursday morning, when the inquest resumed, six witnesses testified. They were Boots Rogers, Lemmy Quinn, Miss Corinthia Hall, a factory employee, Miss Hattie Hall, stenographer at the factory, J.L. Watkins, and Miss Daisy Jones. Though put through a searching examination by the coroner in an effort to break down his statement that he had visited the factory on the day of the tragedy, shortly after noon, just after Mary Fagan is supposed to have received her pay envelope and left, Quinn stuck to his story. Boots Rogers testified that Mr. Frank had changed the tape and the time clock while the officers were in the factory Sunday morning after the body of Mary Fagan had been found, and that he stated at the time that the sheet he took from the clock seemed to be correct. Rogers also described Mr. Frank's manner when the officers went to his home in an automobile to take him to the factory Sunday morning. Miss Corinthia Hall, an employee in the factory, testified that Mr. Frank's treatment of the girls in the factory was unimpeachable. She also testified that she had met Lemmy Quinn at a restaurant near the factory near the noon hour Saturday, her statement being confirmatory of his visit to the factory on the fatal day. 
J.L. Watkins testified that he had mistaken Miss Daisy Jones for Mary Fagan when he thought he saw Mary on the street near her home on Saturday afternoon about 5 o'clock. Miss Jones' testimony was also in this connection. At the afternoon session Thursday, Detective Harry Scott of the Pinkerton Agency was one of the first witnesses called. He followed Assistant Superintendent Schiff of the pencil factory, who was excused after short testimony. The most startling statement made by Scott was that Herbert Haas, one of Frank's attorneys, had requested him to withhold all evidence from the police until Haas himself had considered it. Scott said that he told Haas he would withdraw from the case first. Scott said he was still employed by the pencil factory. Detective John Black followed Scott on the stand and told of finding a bloody shirt at Lee's home on the Tuesday afternoon following the murder. Newt Lee was recalled to the stand and said that when he and Frank conversed together at the police station that Frank told him, If you keep that up, your story, Newt, we'll both go to hell. He told of Frank's apparent nervousness on Saturday afternoon. Asked about the bloody shirt, Lee said that if it was found at his house, it must have been his. That a white lady once made four shirts for him. That if it was a store-bought shirt, it didn't belong to him. Frank was recalled to the stand and testified in regard to the elevator, the time clock, his work Saturday afternoon, his actions that night and Sunday morning, and general questions in regard to arrangements at the factory. City detectives then called some character witnesses. Tom Blackstock, who said Frank was accustomed to pick at the factory girls and had placed his hands on them familiarly. Miss Nellie Wood of 8 Corporate Street, who said that she had worked about two years at the pencil factory, that Frank would come to her and put his hands on her, quote, when it was not called for, end quote, that he was too familiar and she didn't like it, that Frank had tried to pass it off as a joke and that she told him she, quote, was too old for that, end quote. And Mrs. C.D. Donegan of 165 West 14th Street, who said that she worked at the factory three weeks about two years ago and that Frank had winked and smiled at the girls, but, quote, never anything more than that, end quote. The character witnesses concluded the afternoon's testimony and every spectator in the courtroom drew a long breath to think that at last the now famous Fagan case was to go to a body of men called together to pass upon it. It was then 10 minutes past 6 o'clock on the afternoon of Thursday, May 7th, 11 days since Mary Fagan went to her death at the National Pencil Factory. Coroner Donahue began to deliver his charge to the jury. He said, You have heard the statement of the county physician. You have seen what caused death. You have seen the body and have heard the evidence in the case. It is your duty to inquire diligently as to how Mary Fagan came to her death. That was your oath. In case of unnatural death, you were to determine at whose hands death came. You have heard the county physician say strangulation caused death. In determining who is guilty of the murder, you turn to the evidence, and if you find that any other party is implicated or is attempting to shield the murderer, he is guilty in the same degree. Your position in this matter is similar to that of a commitment court, not a trial court. If there is a reasonable suspicion in your mind directed against any person or persons in connection with this crime, it is your duty to hold them. You can also hold witnesses who are essential in trying this case. If you think anybody not actually connected with the case has important information bearing upon it, you can hold them. If you believe anyone is concealing information, it is your duty to commit that person as an accessory of the crime. 
The six men forming the coroner's jury filed one by one out of the door. The crowd waited. Before 20 minutes had passed, back they came. The foreman stood up and announced the verdict. The coroner's jury had decided that Mary Fagan came to her death by strangulation and recommended that Leo M. Frank, superintendent of the pencil factory, and Newt Lee, its night watchman, be held for investigation by the grand jury. When the verdict was announced, Frank and the Negro were at the tower, having been carried there as soon as the former concluded his testimony. At once, Deputy Sheriff Plenty Minor carried the news to the prisoners. Frank was in the hallway of the tower reading an afternoon paper. The deputy approached him and told him that the coroner's jury had recommended that he and Lee be held for investigation by the grand jury. Well, it's no more than I expected at this time, Frank told him. He made no further comment. Newt Lee was more visibly affected. When the news was broken to him, he hung his head in a dejected manner and appeared very much depressed. I didn't do it, white folks, he muttered again and again. Chapter 9. Dictograph Incident The words persecution and prejudice, which were to figure so prominently at the trial of Frank, first commenced to be heard soon after the coroner's long inquest had ended. Then it was learned that Solicitor General Hugh M. Dorsey had become so interested in the case that he had hired private detectives to make an independent probe of the tragedy. It was then generally known, despite the fact that he had made no formal announcement, that Dorsey was convinced that Frank was guilty, and it was said that he had employed detectives not to work with open minds towards solving the mystery, but to seek only evidence against Frank. While it was true in neither case, the same thing was said about the city detectives, and friends of the accused man commenced to declare that he was persecuted because of his race. The Jews of Atlanta were then, and are to this good day, firmly convinced, or rather, they say that they are convinced, that Frank is an innocent man. Not as reticent as Dorsey, the city detectives freely declared that they were firm in the conviction that in Frank they had the murderer. Continually, however, they protested that they were open to conviction, and would follow to the bitter end any clue that presented itself, even though it pointed away from Frank. If the solicitor's detectives unearth anything in the case, it will probably remain a mystery, as they left the job after about 10 days and have never appeared in Atlanta again. For several weeks after the coroner had committed Frank and Newt Lee to the tower as suspects, there were continued rumors that a young girl had been heard talking on street corners and saying that she met Mary and waited outside the factory, while she went up and got a paycheck from Frank. Finally, the detectives located the woman in question, and it developed that it was on the Saturday preceding the tragedy that she went to the factory with the girl who met her death there a week later. Colonel Thomas B. Felder, a well-known Atlanta attorney, and the man who incurred the undying enmity of Governor Cole Bleese of South Carolina, by his prosecution of the famous dispensary graft cases, had announced shortly after the coroner's inquest that he had been employed by citizens of Bellwood, the district in which Mary Fagan lived, to find and prosecute the girl's murderer. He stated that in his opinion, the murderer was really Leo M. Frank, but declared that it was necessary for the citizens of Georgia to hire detectives who, quote, could and would, end quote, solve the mystery and secure evidence enough to convict Frank, if he was guilty, or any other man if Frank was innocent. The colonel did not express a very high regard for Chief Lanford and the city detectives, 
And as to the Pinkertons, he quoted many rumors which said that they were working not to solve the mystery, but to shield Frank. Colonel Felder was a personal friend of William J. Burns, and the latter had assisted him in his efforts to impeach Governor Blease. Felder declared that if the public would assist him by donating to a fund that he would get Burns, who was then in Europe working on the Martin disappearance mystery, to come to Atlanta and take up the hunt for the factory girl's slayer. Subscriptions came in rapidly, and on May 18th, C.W. Toby, special investigator, came to Atlanta to gather up the loose strings and pave the way for his famous chief. Soon after his arrival, Toby gave out an interview in which he said that his theory of the crime coincided exactly with that then entertained by the city detectives. For about a week, Felder and the Burns people were the figures of chief interest in the manhunt. P.A. Flack, a New York fingerprint expert, was brought here by Solicitor Dorsey, but had remained only for a day, and after examining the notes found by the body, declared that by handling them so much, the detectives had destroyed a vital clue. He could tell nothing about the notes because of the condition in which he found them, he said. Charges that a vast corruption fund had been raised to save Frank guilty or innocent, were heard frequently at this time, although they were never sustained. It was charged that the Pinkerton operatives, employed by the pencil company, were, quote, double-crossing, end quote, the city police, working with them simply to learn their secrets and report them to the attorneys for the defense of Frank. Another charge was that Felder and the Burns people, while posing as the manhunters, were really employed by Frank's friends to shield him. The city detectives were suspicious of the Burns people, and not only failed to give them any assistance, but had every Burns operative shadowed. While their charges were never substantiated, the suspicions of the city detectives culminated in the dictographing of Colonel Felder by agents in the employ of Chief Lanford. On May 23rd, the Atlanta Journal sprang the famous dictograph sensation, devoting its entire front page to the scoop. Chief Lanford charged that Colonel Felder had sought to bribe G.C. February, his stenographer, to steal certain affidavits and papers in the Fagan case. The dictograph records, which were printed in full, are too lengthy to reproduce here. In substance, the alleged records showed that Felder was negotiating for the purchase of certain affidavits, which, it was alleged, would show up the city detective department, proving that the chief and some of the members were corrupt. February, it seems, acting under instruction, had led the attorney to believe that he could obtain certain papers in the Fagan mystery, which would prove corruption in the department. The deal was negotiated through A.S. Colyar, an adventurer formerly from Tennessee, who had known Felder during the dispensary graft probe. In the dictograph records, Mayor James G. Woodward was also involved, it being alleged that he sanctioned the alleged effort on the part of Felder to, quote, get the goods, end quote, on the detectives. Nothing was accomplished by the dictograph exposure, although it led to a sizzling war of words between Felder and Lanford. This battle of vituperation resulted in a near-physical combat between the two principals, when they met in the courthouse, but deputy sheriffs prevented the actual passing of blows. It is claimed that Felder reached in his pocket at the time for a revolver, but when the charge was made before the grand jury, it failed to return an indictment. The net result of the grand jury's investigation of the sensational dictograph incident was that it indicted Felder for libeling Lanford and Lanford for libeling Felder in their several published attacks on each other. While the Felder-Lanford controversy had little to do with the Fagan murder mystery, it served to intensify the public interest in the crime 
and to make rumors that unseen hands were at work harder to down. Also, it served to end the connection of the Burns detectives with the case. The war of words was at its height, and the city detectives were trailing the Burns men even to their meals. This is a hell of a family row and no place for a stranger, said Burns investigator Toby, and he grabbed a train for New York. On Friday, May 23rd, the Fulton County Grand Jury took up the consideration of a bill charging Frank with murder. The witnesses who were heard at the first day's session were Dr. J.W. Hurt, the county physician, whose evidence did not reach the public until the Frank trial. Police Sergeant S.L. Dobbs, R.P. Barrett, who discovered the blood on the second floor of the factory, and strands of a girl's hair near the same place. Detective J.N. Starnes and W.W. Rogers. The second day's session of the grand jury resulted in the returning of a true bill, despite the fact that hundreds of people had declared that Frank would never be indicted for the crime. Among the most important witnesses of the second session were Harry Scott, the Pinkerton, and Miss Montine Stover. The girl was a new figure in the case and a witness of much importance. She told the grand jury in substance that when going to get her paycheck on Saturday, April 26th, she walked into Superintendent Frank's office at exactly 12.10 o'clock. The office was perfectly empty, she asserted, and expecting someone to come in momentarily, she waited for five minutes. Failing to see Frank or any of the office force, she left the building and returned the following Saturday, when Pinkerton operatives found her. The girl had not testified at the coroner's inquest, although located before the final session, and detectives admitted that they were saving her as a, quote, star witness, end quote. Immediately after he located Montine Stover, Harry Scott of the Pinkertons with John Black of the City Force visited Frank at the tower and said, Did you leave the office at any time between 12 and 12.50 o'clock Saturday? No, answered Frank. Think about it and be as positive as you possibly can, said Scott. I am absolutely certain that I didn't leave my office from the time Miss Hall, my stenographer, left until I went up to the fourth floor to tell Arthur White's wife that I was going to lock the building, he replied. In other words, the girl came in at the exact time the state contends Frank was back in the metal room, choking the life out of Mary Fagan's body. The testimony of the girl was considered by the solicitor as of extreme importance. It was doubly valuable because at that time it was the only flaw the police had found in Frank's story, as told at the inquest. Try as they would, they could not break it, for every point that could be corroborated by witnesses was found to be true. Montine Stover's story was considered a clincher, and the grand jury returned the true bill when Scott followed her on the witness stand and gave his story of Frank's repeated assertions that he did not leave his office during the interval mentioned. Grand jury sessions are secret, but the testimony of every witness who went before the body, except Dr. Hertz, was known to the public at the time, and no facts except Montine Stover's story, which were not placed before the coroner's inquest, were heard by the 23 men, who formally indicted Frank for the crime. There were five Jews on the grand jury, an unusual number for Fulton County, and before the indictment was returned, there were many rumors that they would block it. However, if a single vote was cast against the bill, the fact never became known as every member signed the indictment. Frank had not expected an indictment, and had confidently told friends that a grand jury would never formally charge him with the crime. 
In his cell in the tower, however, he took the news quietly as he had taken practically every turn in the case. He took much consolation from the fact that a grand jury hearing his ex parte and his side was presented by no one. 